The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're very welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast. I'm Michael Glennon, sitting in for Hugh Cahill this week on the panel. We have Donald Lennon, Fiona Hayes and Wes Liddy. Happy Christmas, everyone. How's it Happy going? Christmas. Very impressed with your three there, Michael. Thank you very much. <laughs> we have an absolute mountain to get through here, guys. As you can imagine, there's so many rugby news lines this week. And we're not just going to jump straight into the, the hard news because it'd be remiss not to touch on the performances of four provinces who who won their opening European games. And we'll just we'll, we'll kick off with Munster and we'll touch on the other teams later. But Fiona, you were there. What was it like? Uh, some was the atmosphere was absolutely brilliant over there I suppose you didn't know what you were going to get when you were going over on the flight we actually had a book from uh, months previous it was kind of a, a Christmas outing for uh, for myself and a couple of the girls and it was it was just it was amazing it was just great right now I did have to re-watch the game when I came back um, because obviously you were just absorbed in the whole atmosphere and everything about it but uh, what, a, what a day for Munster rugby class and the lap of honour and everything at the end by the lads it was just brilliant to be there and part of it Donald, was there a sense that they could do that? I mean, and maybe an extra boost on the morning of the match when it came through that Wasps were a bit hit as well? Yeah, look, I think obviously when you 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 saw firstly that they were going to fulfil the fixture, I think there was a lot of pride in the fact that regardless of the, the 34 fellas that were missing, uh, I think the uh, decision that was taken from two weeks out that they were going to concentrate on the lads who were left in, in Limerick uh, in the training camp there was a suggestion at one stage, for example, that some of the players who'd come back from South Africa, who were coming out of quarantine at 12 o'clock on the Saturday night, that they may be flown into uh, Coventry on the Sunday morning, especially for, for front row reserves. Um, but to be fair, it looks as if they'd made that decision from far out to stick with what they had. Uh, I have to say, look, uh, I, I, I felt that they would be competitive, given that they were playing a WASP team that we knew in advance were short 18 players out injured. Uh, I was preparing my own piece Sunday morning when I when the news came through then that Wasp said another five fellas who were withdrawn and when I saw the guys, you know, the two second rows were gone. Uh, Tom Willis was out of the back row. Umanga was gone from 10. So I said, yeah, Jesus. I mean, when you looked at the, the two teams on paper, the fact that Munster had six international backs, Campbell I knew uh, from, from PBC and Cork. I'd seen him play for your Munster this year. So I never had any worries about him playing at full-back. So then it was a question of, could the front five survive? And uh, I think the scrum was really the only place that they were under pressure. And there was only three scrums in the first half. And then with uh, Brad Shields, who was the one international forward they had, when he got sent off, then you said, well, look, all bets are off here. But that doesn't in any way take from what was an incredible day. And listen, uh, I suppose the Munster Academy has been taking a rap for a long time. Uh, in comparison to the quality that comes out of Leinster. Uh, I think this went beyond the Munster Academy and that some of those lads are only sort of uh, national talent guys. They're not even in the Munster Academy. So I thought it was more a day for the clubs, for the schools, mm. for the regional clubs, the likes of Venice, who had three lads involved. It must have been absolutely phenomenal for them. So from that point of view, I think regardless of what happens, and you have to take into account the Bradshield sending off and the fact that Wasps weren't great. It doesn't matter because it sent a message to young lads that there's a dream out there and you could be part of that dream. And I think that that story was way more important than the five points they came home with. 
And, and even Wes, that somebody from Limerick was playing for, for Munster in the back. <laughs> <laughs> How day as well for the AAL clubs and, uh, and then the people of Limerick as well. There's four lads from Limerick playing, oh, I think you'll find, Michael, oh, you know? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I got a text off a lad from uh, Ennis on Sunday night, a stalwart there with the club, and he was telling me that the two Ennis lads the two of the three Ennis lads on the bench were cannon fodder for the Ennis junior team uh, a couple of seasons back. So I think it definitely uh, kind of re-energised the connection with the clubs, which had probably been happening a bit this year anyway, because fellas had been back playing a bit more, um, re-energised the supporters. Um, it's a pity it kind of takes uh, exceptional circumstances for that to happen sometimes, I feel. Um, and I suppose it reminds you that there's... a. Uh, a pretty unique culture there when when things like that happen and and, and you kind of I don't know I suppose I suppose you you wonder um, sometimes is that being squandered a little bit and you kind of hope that events like this don't kind of uh, paper over cracks but rather that they kind of um, serve to, to to make people double down on their efforts and the, look the pennies obviously dropped us rural and junior clubs are a huge pathway that needs to be emphasised because competing with Leinster through an A school's model is just not a gore. So, but I think if you look at two of the star performers and Patrick Campbell and Daniel Okeke, I mean, they're, they're two obvious pathways as well in terms of, you know, a very prominent GAA player. He's not a, he's not a crossover player by any means. He played rugby a long time, but, and equally, you know, a guy from a, certainly from a non-traditional rugby background and Daniel Okeke, and you're kind of thinking it's, uh, there, there's probably a lot more guys with that same potential out there, but, you know, you have to go and get these guys. Um, the odd one will fall into your lap every now and again. Um, but if you make a concerted effort, um, I, I don't think Munster's resources in terms of player development are tapped or even close to being tapped by any means. So, so hopefully it really pushes things on in that regard. And Donald, you had a piece this morning in, in your column in the Irish Examiner uh, about Scott Buckley. And just what took me was the smile on his face when the camera panned to him at the end of the match, for, when he got the, the Man of the Match award. And I mean, there was something in his eyes. You could see it meant a lot more to him when he was trying to maintain his cool, but obviously meant a huge amount to, to the young man. Yeah, look, it, it was infectious. I think his story, uh, like he's, he, he did come through the traditional path. Well, he, he played rugby as a young fellow in Kinsale, went to CBC, Captain Christians to win a Monster Schools Cup in 2019. But, uh, and he was a lad who was earmarked, uh, you know, came into the Monster Academy, but he's had a horrendous run of injury for the past two or three years. He broke his fib in his tibia, so that put him out for a period. He just came back. He ripped his hamstring off the bone. Same injury that finished Paul O'Connell's career. It took him a year to come back from that. He was just coming back from that then, and he got a very serious knee injury. But there's a, I thought, a nice little anecdote last Christmas. Uh, his grandfather, Paddy Kiley, who uh, people in, in, in rugby and medical circles in Cork would know the Kiley family well. Uh, Paddy uh, would have played, won a Munster Cup with UCC and coached UCC to a Munster Cup. Uh, played for Munster himself, but uh, I think last Christmas he dug out his old Munster jersey from the 60s. He got it cleaned and framed and he presented it to young Scott as a kind of a reminder. Look, there's a tradition here, uh, you know, Munster and what it represents. Uh, but that, that, that little incident proved inspirational. So, I mean, I was just speculating in my own piece this morning uh, 
You know, I wonder what Scott is going to do with his number two jersey from last week. I mean, I think there might be a fair chance his grandfather might see it on Christmas Day. But, um, you know, that, that, I think it summed up for me, like there is a kind of um, a, 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 a rich tradition in Munster of families, of wider uh, connections coming through the scene. Like there's never a Munster team that goes out that you don't say, oh, geez, I knew his father or I played against his father or I, I know his uncle or something. And it's that parochial element, I think, when it's backs to the wall, uh, that that was so evident last week. But, uh, you know, I thought, uh, Scott Buckley, I mean, you're in, you're in the limelight when you're a hooker. You know, it's an individual skill. You stand in front of that line out and, uh, you know, they obviously had a fair bit of work done. But I thought, uh, I think Munster lost one line out of the 16. And Scott, that was in the last five minutes. So the 70 minutes Buckley was on, I think he had 13 uh, 100% return from 13 lineouts, and given that you're scrum and Fiona will know when you're under pressure in the front row as Munster were and you have to compose yourself to get up and, and uh, you know deliver into a lineout. now I think a lot of pre- pre- uh, uh, credit obviously goes to Peter Amani and Pike Byrne in mm. terms of the leadership that they gave just the simplicity of their calling at times is something a lot of people can learn take the pressure off the hooker let him get into the game but obviously when he got the try it was the fourth try, which meant it was the bonus try. Um, so, like, for that, I thought it just encapsulated the day. Um, you know, I thought Omani and Ty Byrne in particular, mm-hmm. given that all the pressure was going to come up front, were outstanding. But I, I thought it was fitting that a young fella got the man of the match on the day that it was. But uh, I just thought it was a lovely story, that, that little connection with his grandfather. It's not three or four weeks ago we sat here when the news of Stephen Larkham's departure came through and Bernard kind of mentioned in the background that maybe the negotiations for Van Grand weren't going as crudely. Donald, you said it was very important they sorted out now, but as in, as opposed to the end of the season. But just what's your initial take on that? Were you surprised and where does it leave Munster? Well, I knew that Munster had offered him a contract. Um, when the suggestion came up last week that he was going to bat, the information I had, no, but it was. One of the issues with bloody COVID is you're not as close to people as you are. You don't see players, you don't see people in the management. Normally you go in for a coffee and you meet somebody and you, you know, you get a sense of what's happening. But that hasn't got on for a long time now for obvious reasons. Uh, but there was, look, the rumour mill was flying around about Van Grant. Uh, I just thought, you know, it was a bit of a, a kick in the teeth, really. Uh, given the, the sort of the high that was there from last Sunday. Um, look, it's obviously there's a six-month clause. Now his contract was up anyway at the end of the season. Normally there, the Erasmus scenario where he declared his intent six months out uh, uh, was there for obvious reasons. Here now we have two coaches who were leaving in the end of June, just at a time when the province got a great little injection. Uh, it's not so much, look, I don't think... Losing Van Grand is the end of the world. I mean, he is four years there. There has been progress in certain areas, but not in others. I think it's more the wider picture, the fact that Munster will now have had five head coaches in 10 years. Uh, the fact that Larkham is gone, and I understand his family reasons, and a, a specific job came up for him and the Brumbies, but you couple it with Jerry Flannery. Like, it isn't as if Munster let these people go. The Jerry Flannery's, Felix Jones, Razi Erasmus, Jack Nienarber, uh, Larkham and Van Grant, they were all offered contracts, but they choose not to accept them. And that, for me, is a concern 
Uh, so this appointment, no, is going to be incredibly important. Fiona, Keith Earls wrote in his book about that's a fundamental problem over the years. That was one of the things as he comes to the end of his career and he was trying to get a, another medal, either another URC or European medal. He said it's a fundamental problem, the changes of head coaches. I mean, how, dis can, how disruptive is it for that squad of players and maybe disheartening as well? Yeah, it's definitely disheartening and disruptive. You, you know it, like you you know everyone brings their own style as a head coach. So yeah, you might have your 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 backline attack. You might have you might have different areas that other coaches are involved. But it, it, essentially, it's the head coach that will make decisions on the style of play that you're you're going to be going out week in week in or week out week in playing. And if if that's constantly been being disrupted year in year out, you don't know. There's you know there's there's preferences with some coaches with some players. You don't know who you're going to be playing alongside. I think it's a massive disruption for every squad or for that squad in particular because it's happened so often. And it's like every time I suppose in, as well in the last few months we've been talking. You know our things kicking into place. We've talked about Larkin before he's gone. Are we starting to see his style coming through in that backline attack? And now we're looking at losing him, losing. And I suppose looking at whoever's coming is in as a head coach what area they go to could you be looking at maybe round three as well not being involved who knows you know it depends what type of head coach they're going that's going to take over their own exactly Wes you had a an interesting point there if this announcement had have come last week that maybe somebody else's name would have been in the frame on Joe Schmidt who has been appointed as an independent selector or whatever that whatever exactly that is but when you're look, looking ahead now, who do you think is, is a fit for it? Or who, as not exactly who everyone would like to see, but who is who does it make sense would come in or, or that's practical would come in? Well, you're obviously looking for a minimum of two for a start and probably a third if Ferrara goes from defence as well. So it, it's a package and a combination, obviously. And um, I, I think the Raj stuff is, is the obvious one, but, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like he's that way inclined or it's good timing. To be honest, I think the pressure on Raj as a head coach, if he went back to Munster at this point in his career, would be horrendous. So I don't even think it's necessarily the right move for everyone involved. I'd be biased on the assistant coach um, in terms of, I think, Mike Prendergast is a perfect fit. Um, he's gathered the experience. I know the guy well, I'd be honest, but... Uh, it's because I know him well that I'd say that he brings a lot to it in terms of a connection with the place, in terms of a real feel for what's going on at club level, at school level. Um, he's a really granular, detail-focused, kind of obsessive guy. So as, as a backs coach and attack coach, I think he'd be a great fit with a kind of a... If the brief going forward is going to be to work with these younger players and that there maybe isn't the funding for huge marquee signings possibly to go with it, I, I think the profile of the headman is maybe a kind of a charismatic, inspirational figure and let the, the coaches beneath him be more detail-orientated and, like, it, it's wish list stuff and I've no idea how realistic it is, but an obvious fit for me would be, if you could get him, would be someone like Scott Robertson and... Um, you know, I'd much prefer they went down a New Zealand route than a South African if they were going outside. There's long-standing kind of ties between the Crusaders and Munster. Um, he missed out on the All Blacks job. Some overseas experience isn't looked down on at all in New Zealand. I'm sure Munster could offer him a better financial package than the Crusaders can. So, I mean, I think there is a good quality of candidate there, but 
I think there's two other issues that need to be looked at first. And one is that really since, and I'd be interested in the lads take on this, since Declan Kidney left in 2008, has any head coach appointed to Munster been an unqualified success, bar possibly Razzie for one season? Um, and who's who's leading the search? Um, you know, it's probably David Nusifora, we would think. Um, so what's the brief of the role uh, primarily? Uh, not that success for Munster and bringing players through for Ireland are necessarily mutually exclusive, but I don't know. I think it's an uneasy um, process uh, in, in some ways that way. And could Munster be more selfish in that way, Donald, that they should push for someone who is going to get them over the line? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the RFU and Lucifora are going to have their hands all over this, but Munster need to get who they want to have. Um, Look, the Mike Prendergast one is a no-brainer in that he, he's proved himself now on so many fronts. He's proved himself with clubs who were down the relegation area. He worked in Pro D2. He was in, in Stade Francais where they were struggling a bit. Now he's in Racing. I don't know that anybody watching Racing last Friday mm-hmm. night. I mean, I, I, I was out at uh, lunchtime Friday. I must have told 10 fellas, lads, make sure you tune in tonight, Northampton and Racing. And I named off the back line they had. And they were absolute... No, well, it helps, of course, when you have quality. But to be fair to Mike Prendergast, there's a lot of Mavericks in that back line. Uh, like um, uh, uh, Townsend has had his issues with, with uh, Finn Russell over the years. Uh, Kirtley Beale has been in major issues in, in rugby in Australia. Um, so these are all independent Mavericks, geniuses of players. But I tell you, it takes some head to be able to get their collective will together and perform to the level that they did. I think from Prendergast's point of view, I don't think he's a head coach. I think he is an attack coach. Uh, so uh, all of a sudden, yes, he'll be high on monstrous priority. But if I was my Prendergast, I'd be saying, well, hold on a while now, lads. Who have you got in line for the head coach's job? Because uh, I'm not going to give up my gig in Racing to find out that in three months' time that, that there's a head coach, that his philosophy is totally different to the way that I like to play. So that's a fundamental issue for the star. Secondly, I think the dream job, if I had the blank check, I would be going for Scott Robinson. Uh, I think what he's done with the Crusaders, uh, I think the type of individual he is, um, would just get the best out of players. I, I, I was lucky during the World Cup in Japan, we were out uh, one night. Well, we were out a lot of nights, actually, but on this particular night, uh, we were having a meal in a restaurant and somebody came up and said, do you know Scott? I said, I don't. He came over. Uh, obviously, our combinator was was Raj um, in that we obviously... Mm. I, uh, Raj had gone, I think, from the... I had quite... In 2019, I think he was just leaving. But I had a half an hour chatting with him. And you know yourself as a... He was infectious. And I came away myself saying, Jesus, I... Oh, God, I'd love to be involved with him. I'd love to be playing under him. I'd love to be in a management group with him. Um, love so, to be a disco and, with him. A disco. Well, Jesus, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to... Uh, no, I'd be in trouble there with, with two... with. Uh, Two new hips and a knee, I wouldn't be with him. I'd be in severe trouble. But anyway, uh, he's just, I think he would be the perfect fit. I think now that he's been overlooked by New Zealand and with Joe Schmidt, you kind of mentioned there, coming into the New Zealand setup, that could be closed off for Robinson for a while. He's relatively young in coaching. He's an expressed the desire that he wants to coach in every league in the world. Now, he did play, I think, with uh, Perpignan in the past, and he, he, so he wants to coach in the top 14 in France. But maybe his best route to that would be to start in the, in the Heineken Cup and the URC. 
So I think he would be the perfect fit. Then maybe two or three years' time, if the likes of Algarra sees him involved, do we have a state of close relationship? That could open another door. Right now, I don't think Raj would be interested in the job for all kinds of reasons. He's a committed guy. He signed for La Rochelle for three years. I know his, his eldest lad has started secondary school now in France. Um, so from that point of view, uh, and, and Ronan knows what he wants anyway. He's not going to be co-told by somebody mm. waving a monster flag at him. I mean, yeah. he's, he's way beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think the Robinson one would be outstanding. To be fair to Erasmus, he was only there over a season. But uh, I think Munster won 29 of the 32 games that he was involved in. So had he stayed, I think you were going somewhere. But you need to wind the clock back now. Uh, for me, oh, geez, I'd, I'd give anything to get Robinson involved. Right, we, we'll move off Munster shortly. Just one other very word on very unfortunate Joey Carberry after finding his form again, after working his way back up to that level, Fiona, and then gets uh, falls awkwardly on his elbow and he has surgery coming up. And obviously that's, you know, I don't know, three months minimum to get back from something like that. I know, and you know what? It's everyone's been talking about him. Everyone's been reviewing every single thing he does, and he's been constantly getting better. I think with each game, I think we've it's been a slow burner, but we've definitely started to see him come into a slight bit of form. And actually, that was the game I thought he played with such freedom. It was almost like we saw glimpses of the old joy. So absolutely devastating for him, and I really, really feel for him because it's slight kind of late hit as well, which is I know all part of the game, but just something so so small and being on such a high from the game it's 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 so sad for him especially with the thoughts maybe he mightn't be ready for the six nations up and coming as well is is what is what we want to see we want that's what everyone's talking about is that role who's gonna who's gonna come in after johnny and he seemed to be making his way up there steady and slowly and i i'm i i i i can't believe i feel good for him after when i read the article i, I just felt so sad yeah, well, they've had Healy and Crowley in at various stages, so let's hope they can step up now uh, as, as required. Listen, Leinster went kind of power for the course against Bath uh, lads, and we don't know what's going to happen with those. There's COVID in the Leinster camp, there's COVID in the Montpellier camp. As it stands, they're heading over to France for a Friday night game, but there's, there's not really much to be said, because that's the world we're living in now, but day by day we'll find out if anything else happens. Connacht... Very impressive. I, I don't know. I guess Stad woke up in Galway and Sunday morning looked out the window and said, not really, lads, not really up to this day. But, but they still, Wes, Connacht had a, had a job to do and they got it done quite impressively in the end. Wasn't surprised, to be honest. A um, little bit, yeah, maybe with Stad's motivation at times. But look, it's a, it's a, it's consistent. Like, they always pulled off scallops over the years, but it's consistently a very difficult place to go now um, for any team. Um, they're playing a great brand of rugby, obviously. Um, again, consistency maybe has been a little bit of a challenge for them. Um, and it certainly doesn't get easy this week with a trip to you know Leicester, who are unbeaten since the start of the season, have quite an atmosphere of their own to rely on, um, and got a win somewhat fortuitously last week in Europe. So, you know, can they put those back-to-back performances together? Maybe it doesn't even matter. One away, one away loss to the Tigers won't be fatal to them potentially challenging to get out of the group, I don't think. Yeah, and, and obviously Leicester beat the top 14 leaders, uh, Bordeaux, over there. So that was a real top of the table or a battle between France and England as well. I'm talking about consistency. It was Ulster's problem to be backing up. But if you're, if you're going to be inconsistent, I suppose, Donald, that losing away to the Ospreys in the URC is the time to drop it. And if you to 
bounce back up, beating uh, Claremont in Claremont with a quite an impressive and, and fully deserved performance. That's the way to go about it. Yeah. Look, I think if you, uh, you, you park the reasons around the Munster thing, then Ulster's win away was the performance of the Irish, <laughs> of the Irish provinces in Europe this weekend. I mean, you know, we, we questioned would they have the capacity to go over there and win last week. A lot of it on the basis that Ian Henderson was out. And we weren't quite sure uh, at the time we recorded whether Dwayne Vermeulen would be available or not. But you have to say Ulster turned up uh, and they didn't stand off. They attacked uh, Claremont right from the outset. Um, Johnny Cooney, I mean, his kicking was phenomenal. They got to try it at, at a crucial time. Nick Timoney again having a very influential game. Um, but look, Ulster, we know that they can do this. The bottom line is they have to, to back it up now. I think is it uh, Northampton, I think, is it? Um, that they're playing this weekend? Playing Northampton. Uh, yeah. by Racing, of course. I, I yeah, yeah. I mean, Northampton, I thought, I watched that game, as I mentioned earlier, I thought Northampton were poor. I was disappointed with mm. them. Rubbish. But, and, and, you know, I would, you know, I'd expect that Ulster should be able to kick on. Again, there's a suggestion during the week that... Uh, Ian Henderson may now be available for this Saints game. So, um, you know, it's a fantastic start for Ulster if they win those two, because let's be honest, they were two very difficult, challenging fixtures. I mean, when you look across the board in Europe, uh, it's a bit disconcerting in that, you know, this was the pinnacle and, uh, you know, the, the, the Heineken Cup has always been massive. But, I mean, I was amazed last weekend. Uh, you mentioned Leicester Bordeaux, like Leicester flying at the top of the, the Premiership. They made eight changes going to Bordeaux. No, the fact that they won, I don't know. What, what does that say about Bordeaux, who are top of the 14? Montpellier, who, uh, who are flying in the French, uh, the top 14 as well. They went to Exeter, left half their players at home and got absolutely stuffed. Even Cast, who Munster played this weekend, they were playing at home. They hadn't been beaten there for five or six years. And they changed half their team against, um, against Harlequins. Now, I know that there is a new thing in, in, in France at the moment where there's compulsory rest for their international players for a two-week period, and it's up to the club when you rest them. Now, I think it's a bit concerning that a lot of the clubs are choosing to rest them during the European competition. I mean, you spend a year trying to qualify for this tournament, and then you go out with half your team. So from that point of view, I just think it doesn't reflect well on the competition as a whole. Then you have the whole, the look, and... You know, the COVID thing, uh, again, the, the, the new variant has come at a time uh, with Christmas coming, which is going to be hugely impactful for everyone. But from a sporting context, it's wreaking havoc. And already we see, you know, Leinster and Montpellier. That could be a case of who blinks first, who has less players and who decides I got to pull the, the plug and who gets the 28 points to, to nil win. So from that point of view, it's been a bit disappointing. But look, I think we can only drive on and, and enjoy the quality of the good games that we're getting. Yeah. OK, we'll move on, Fiona. On Monday, the news came out that about 60 current and former players had uh, sent a letter to the Irish sports uh, ministers, Irish government sports ministers, telling them that they'd lost trust in the IRFU. I mean, the IRFU came out with a, quite a lengthy reply, which, you know, the feeling is that it was kind of tone deaf that, they hadn't um, taught it true fully, even though it was quite a reply. The ministers are going to meet the parties. They want Sport Ireland to get involved. It's, it's very, I know they said after 2017 World Cup, that was rock bottom. After the disaster in Parma, 
was supposed to be rock bottom again. And it seems we've sunk further in terms of the relationships between the, the parties here. What's your take on it? Yeah, well, that's it, Michael. I think um, I think it's 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 probably relationships is the big word in the whole thing. We're, we're after getting um, we can see that obviously there's zero communication, I suppose, is really what we can see that's going on. I mean, they are if you have obviously come out and said that they're doing their two reviews and and um, that's good. You know, that's it's really good. They have an independent outside review. But I think there's probably issues around the whole um, releasing of those reviews and um them being made public and I think that's what that's what a lot of um the girls and uh, on the team and I suppose past players really want to see it's 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 probably a little bit disheartening as well for them that your few kind of didn't come out and maybe say let's sit down let's talk about this so there's definitely an issue there and I suppose the biggest thing that we don't want to see is a standoff we want to see that there has to be some action whether it's sitting down together discussing if players aren't happy on your current team, I think you should be maybe looking at it and, and chatting, why, why aren't you happy? Is there anything we could do to, to make it better? And I mean, you would hope that there's some back-channel communications going on because at the moment it's a real collision course, which doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem like it's going to be uh, sorted out really quickly, Fiona. No, and I suppose it doesn't. And you have a new coach come in as well. I mean, you've Greg McWilliams in there, and I mean, he's getting around to the clubs. He, I, we all, I'm, I'm coaching down a Ballon colleague. Um, he sent out emails. He really, really wants to develop that grassroots. He wants the club. He wants the clubs involved in it. And I suppose it's trying to get that cohesion now between the players, the management, and the IRFU. And and if Sport Ireland have to come in or, or whatever needs to be done, we just need to see it done and it needs to be done fast because we're heading into a new Six Nations campaign. World Cup cycle will start after that. And we can't start the way it has been going on because they, I suppose what, what the issue is, like you said before, was players have spoke about it in the past after 2017. And it seems like there hasn't been very much action done about it. And and it's 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 heading into a new cycle. So I suppose they want to see a new start and they want to they want that communication line open and and they really want to and they really, really I think the biggest thing that came out of it for me was it's not throwing money at it. It's it's not about money. It's it's about developing grassroots, it's about getting those communication lines open, it's about it's about that cohesion between sevens and fifteens cohesion with management and just wanting the best for for Irish women's rugby. Donald, you have so much experience of the machinations of what goes on through all the levels and up through the back, the system of the IRFU in management and your dealings with them, commercial rights around the World Cup back in the early 90s. Have you ever seen such a, a conflict played out in public before? I know a lot of it's occasionally it spills over into the into the public sphere, but have you ever seen anything as dramatic or as standoffish? In <clears throat> no, I haven't. But I think, look, to be fair to the to the women, um, they've got for desperate measures because really nothing has happened to address the issues that have been there. I think one of the issues that's there at the moment, go back to the FAI, you know, when the uh, when the girls there stood up and whatever that was three or four years ago. Uh, I think that was probably easier to address in some ways and that their demands were actually very specific. They had very specific issues that they had a problem with. Uh, they were clearly identifiable. So from that point of view, it was a question of, OK, let's tick these off one by one. How can we address these and how, how can we improve them? I think from the... Uh, look, I, I, I know a lot of people who were involved in the IRFU and, you know, this... 
this whole thing, nobody has actually grasped the whole element of the women's game. Like it has grown exponentially over the past seven or eight years. But when you look at it, it's not an area that a lot of them have been involved in over a long period of time. Uh, the involvement the, the of the, the, like I remember when they started first and uh, to have been way before Fiona's time, but they were kind of a, a separate identity almost, who yeah. we were clobbered together over the years. Then I remember coming back in flights. I remember one particular one in, in uh, the, uh, oh God, it was around 10, 11 or 12, meeting Rosie Foley and Fiona Steve with a big black eye coming back on the plane from Twickenham. Uh, but everything seemed to be haphazard. There did appear to become a little bit more structure around this, the organization. You had that famous trip to, was it Spain or France, where they were traveling yes. all night? Uh, that kind of focused the attention. But again, that was an easy fix. Okay, you can go in and you do that. All the issues here seem to be broader. It's about the structure of the game, the development paths. But there doesn't seem to be anybody taking ownership of this within the RFU. It appears to me it's an irritant that won't go away. And right at the moment, they're stuck. They have major financial challenges because of COVID. Uh, the, you take it on the, on, the, on, the, on the male side of the game. I know from my own experience in clubland, we're up in arms with the IRFU over the way the, the AIL has been ignored, uh, more so by the professional game. And that's why even last Saturday's, you know, the monster scenario, yeah. the fact, you know, you're Scott Buckley again, I go back to him. The only reason he was able to play at the level of performance that he did was he had five games in a row for UCC in the All-Ireland League. If the league wasn't there, how were those young fellas going to perform? So that's another issue. Um, so, But, I mean, I, it, it strikes me that the IRFU, there's so many crises coming at them at the moment. They don't know where to start. Uh, the, 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 the women's game, like, I don't know, Fiona, is... Uh, would they be better off with a separate entity um, running them within an overall IRFU structure? Um, because at the moment, I think that's what's required because the existing structure isn't fit for purpose. It's almost when the fellas in the IRFU committees, there, there's various jobs they mm. get. It strikes me that none of them want to be on the, the area of the women's game because it's a time bomb waiting to explode. And it's exploded this week. And you know, in some respects, that mightn't be any harm because they need to bang heads together, get people in there to sort this thing out one way or the other. But the only thing, it won't be, it's not the short fix that the FAI women were able to organise. This is more structure, it's more longer term. But what we do know is there is a massive appetite, more so for 15s, I would say, Fiona, and this is your yeah. expertise, then more, more so for the 15 games than the 7s because... It's more inclusive. It's more local on the ground. You don't see sevens tournaments for, you know, for argument's sake. Kids can't turn up on a Saturday morning and, and play in sevens tournaments. So um, I think there's a whole structure around the women's game that has to be, there has to be a clear pathway that is set out. It has to be a, it's going to take a long time because this has to be sorted from the grassroots up. But the women deserve to be, uh, listened to, to be taken seriously and the fact that they had to go to government to get to the position where they are now I think uh, it's sad but it was obviously deemed necessary but it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen from here on in Wes, what's the solution? An easy one Jeez, I don't know um, 
and it's we're a long time talking about it. Um, it's extremely serious that you've over 60 past and present players putting their name to that. Um, I think Fiona's point is really important that it isn't about throwing money at it. It's about grassroots cohesion because, you know, there is a feeling out there that the current women's team by international standards and by comparison with previous iterations of the Irish women's team were extremely well resourced and prepared for this most recent campaign. So there is a bit of an echo chamber that all these things get lumped together sometimes. So I think it's important to emphasize that this is more structural rather than just focused on one individual team. As far as the IRFU go, like for an organization that spends so much money on advertising and have a press officer or 10 surrounding your, the media's every interaction with the team, how they can so consistently shoot themselves in the foot on a PR front is just mind boggling. Um, like I give you one and it's, it's a bit like it, it's not a concrete fact, but I don't know if any of you've seen the most recent GAA ad that's on TV. It's a girl. Uh, she's outside a flats complex in somewhere in Dublin. She's trying to rise a ball with a slitter. Yeah, I think the tagline yeah, yeah. is where we belong. Yeah. And it's hackneyed and manipulative like all ads are. Like, um, you know, there's none of us naive here about it. But you contrast that with the kind of advertisements the IRFU do where, you know, this team of us thing and, you know, that's managed to, I think, alienate more Irish people than any campaign in history. <laughs> like, like, it seems like, like it's, it's clear even in a cheesy way, that the GA's mission as an organisation is, it's also to make money and have a league competition, but there is a clear mission to grow the game and to promote Irish culture and to make Irish culture inclusive and accessible to many different branches of people. Going by the IRFU's messaging, I think they think their role is just to administer an existing sport or to win matches slash make money. Um, I, I don't see the care for the game uh, in terms of inclusion and in terms of growth at grassroots level in a very obvious way. I'm not denying there's great work being done by people all over the country, but it's mostly volunteers doing that yeah. work. And I'd question their, like, what are they about substantively as an organisation? Because they are a governing body, not just an elite sports organisation. Fiona, I think at this stage now where you have a parent and there's GA training on on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock and there's rugby training on for an under eights or under tens or under twelves. I mean, it's kind of hard to justify or, you know, it'd be easy to see why a parent would send a child to the GAA. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, they, they, they did very well with Aldi, you know, with, with, with growing the, the game and I've been out at clubs and I, and I, I even down in Ballincollig, I mean, the underage girls is getting bigger and bigger. And we've talked about this before in all the clubs, we, we see it happening. But I suppose when you see this stuff in the media as a parent, you, you, you don't want to be sending your child to like to be involved in stuff like that. It's a game, it's a sport. You want people playing it, enjoying it. And I think that's the main thing that, that I got from it was like that the players themselves, like they're signing these letters, they're not enjoying it. They're not enjoying rugby. They're not enjoying the, they're not enjoying the environment they're in. They want more. And they feel like they're not being listened to. So for me, it's a very easy fix. It's sit down, listen, see see what we can do. And I suppose the thing is get more get more people, get more women involved that have been in that are in the game. Not even women, men that are involved in women's rugby to sit on these committees and not just have kind of outside influence looking at it as a game of rugby. Men's 
and women's is very, very different. Structures, paths, everything. And the sooner we can see that and start to build something uh, like separate and a separate thing for women's rugby, I think it's going to be, it will, it will absolutely bring the level of women's rugby up massively because we do have exceptional players in this country and we're just not performing. So I suppose we need to understand why we're not performing, but also look at that. And, and people, have to, people have to put their hand up and say, you know, maybe we're not doing enough in certain areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think as well, sorry, sorry, Mick. I mean, I've been, I've been at games in Donnybrook. Uh, I've seen those young, you know, young kids. They're talking about girls under 10, uh, 9, 10, 11 years of age. The enthusiasm on their faces, even the, the games that were televised in the RDS afterwards. I know there was a the massive crowd there, but the young girls that were there, I mean, you could see their faces was all about their aspiring to try and be out there. And, you know, you must create a path to enable that to happen. Um, and the thing about which surprises me with the RFU, because like uh, it, it, it's all about inclusion. It's all about growing the base and growing the numbers. And even, you know, the RFU aren't, aren't foolish here. I mean, a lot of the time, the development officers in the young boys games, it was all about uh, bringing more people into the game. Because when you're dealing with Sports Ireland, all your grants are uh, linked into the number of people that are playing. I mean, the women's game gives... Um, uh, the IRFU, a massive base from which to spread the story, spread the game. I mean, you go to any male match, like you go to a Munster game, whether it is Wasps or Leinster in the RDS, 50% of the audience there are female. So there is an interest in the game. Um, it's a question then of trying to harness that from a younger age and giving these younger kids an opportunity to play sport. Um, but it's look, it's 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 not going to be an easy fix. Um, I thought the RFU's response, as Wes said, they continually shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, the Anthony Eddy interview before was it uh, was it whatever game it was a couple of weeks ago. That was the catalyst that set this bomb off again. So they've nobody to blame but themselves, really, at the end of the day. But um, it's it's uh, it's an unfortunate situation now, and one that's going to attract a lot of attention. For all the wrong areas. I think there's an Oireachtas hearing today on women in sport. I've no doubt that this is going to be a, a topic of discussion there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. You, you made the point there, Mick, about the comparison. Why would you send the kid to one versus the other? <coughs> like, I've, I've two girls, four and six, and they both started playing sport this year. They both play hurling football. Like, I've been in, involved in rugby in one guise or another for over 30 years. I wouldn't dream of sending them to play rugby at the minute. But if it was a choice between the two, there'd be no choice to be made. And, and that's what the IRFU have to deal with now. And they, they don't help themselves, for, from my, my opinion, about the sevens as well. That they're, I know they talk about pathways for women going in, but like sevens and fifteens are two different sports. And if you continue to treat them th this, the same, you're trying to shoehorn something like... The Irish identity is with 15s rugby. People can identify with that. People don't really identify with sevens in the same way. Listen, folks, this is to be continued. There's no doubt about it. We have two games on RT radio and RT, uh, all the games across the RT website this weekend. It's Ulster v Northampton will be on RT Radio 1 Extra on Friday night. Munster v Castres on RT Radio on Saturday night, Donald. I think you're on duty for that. Montpellier Leinster Friday night as it stands. And then on Sunday, Connacht are in Leicester. Folks, thanks very much for, for your time today and we'll talk to you all next week.
The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.